Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and today I'm joined on the very day of its publication by Robert Harris, author of a new book, Munich, which returns to Germany of the Second World War, after his debut novel, Fatherland, of course, all those years ago. Robert, to quote Indiana Jones, you know, Nazis, I hate those guys. (laughs) What's the attraction? What brings you back to Nazis? Well, you're right that uh, I am fascinated by them, and I've really consciously waited 25 years to go back into that world. I didn't really want to get myself uh, typecast as a novelist of the Second World War. And also, I felt in Fatherland I'd, I'd really written what it was that I wanted to write about them. But I've long hankered after writing a novel about the Munich Agreement, the moral compromises, the drama of it more from the British perspective than the German. And that's, that was really my way into it. I had this idea many years ago for a character who worked for Neville Chamberlain, who was facing personal problems, marital problems, that sort of in a funny way uh, were echoed by the vast European problem. That is that he, he had trouble with his wife, who's unfaithful, and should he carry on appeasing her or should he make a stand? And from that small seed, gradually over the years the novel has germinated now one of the sort of pleasures of this it's a pleasure for me also for your novels about Cicero is that you're kind of inserting real characters and fictional characters into the side of these big historical events how much do you sort of try and be faithful to the history I mean do you feel you've got a sort of duty to history when you're researching it to get all the details right except for the stuff that's made up I am perhaps too faithful. In the Cicero books, I I took the view that they should have a kind of utilitarian function in a way. They would be a way of finding out what happened. And with this book, I also tried to keep it as accurate as possible. I'm a sort of, I have a sort of manic OCD quality when it comes to facts. I need to feel that the book is true for me to be able to write it. I need to be able to feel, you know, it really was raining on that day and they really did sit in this office and actually at about that time there was an explosion or whatever. That makes the book real to me and I think that's, if it's real to me then there's more of a chance that the reader will believe it. Yes, I mean there's one point where there's, it struck me as kind of I was curious about this. There's a bit of business in, you know, classic old spy business where the document gets sort of stuffed into a copy of De Sturmer from that particular day. Um, actually, it might be De Sturmer, it might be the other one, but one of those sort of anti-Semitic German rags. And I was thinking, we could presumably work out exactly what day this is. And did you, you know, was that the front cover as described on the day? No, actually, you've, you've hit on the one thing that I did actually make <laughs> up in the entire book. But the newspapers that are, the other newspapers, the New York Times, the Times, you know, the quotations from them, they are, they are all accurate. And you know, it was fascinating to read. The New York Times, for instance, said that the weather was very hot and sticky in, in Munich at the time of the Munich conference. That was interesting. It was the climax of the Oktoberfest, the kind of beer, you know, folk festival. I don't, I've never really seen that mentioned in any book about Munich before. So the streets were full of people in lederhosen and dirndls, hundreds, thousands of them. And when Chamberlain went by, they were cheering and waving. And then uh, there was an umpar band that, in, uh, you know, outside Chamberlain's hotel playing the Lambeth Walk. That's uh, amazing detail, wasn't yes, it? Yes, I mean, they're, they're, they're just sort of, you know, that sort of detail, which a historian probably wouldn't have time to bother with. That's meat and drink for me. One of the things that seems to me, I mean, would apply to this as to the Cicero novels is, 
it's presumably something that kind of challenges the thriller writer if you're working in a series of historical events where sort of everybody knows what happens in the end. Yes. On the other hand, I think that's a little bit of a, a mistake that people make. You know, what the most successful in many ways post-war British thriller, uh, The Day of the Jackal, is about the assassination of de Gaulle. Well, of course, we all know de Gaulle was not assassinated. But it doesn't stop it being a riveting book. The endless fascination with the Titanic, or I wrote a novel about Pompeii. We all know the Titanic sinks and Pompeii is destroyed, but waiting for it gives you the drama. This is really like Greek tragedy, where you know what's going to happen. It's the progress towards it which is riveting. So I don't think that's a problem, actually. Of course there was a Second World War, and of course the Munich Agreement was signed, but still, just waiting for it to happen gives a certain amount of tension. Yes, and you've got these characters inserted into the interstices of this. And I think you were saying that one of the your guy, your your character Hugh Leggett, who is a Foreign Office functionary who becomes a sort of assistant to Chamberlain, you stick him on the flight to Munich. Is the person who you booted off the flight to Munich a historical figure who was actually there? Yes, uh, the man who actually went on the flight, Cecil Sires, is a character in the novel. And until the very last moment, Sires is the man who is going, and his name is on the manifest, and the Germans are expecting him, and his name is printed in the newspapers as having flown with Chamberlain. But he's bumped off the flight at the last minute in favour of my man Hugh Leggett. This is another example of a little game I play with myself. It could have happened, you know, and the the apologetics between the two chaps who say, terribly sorry about this, and Sires says, well, your German is much better than mine, it's quite all right. (laughs) I enjoy doing that sort of thing. In the book, Leggett has a sort of opposite number, and, you know, the MacGuffin for the book is that there's these two guys who are university friends, this guy Hartmann, who's a German, again, reasonably sort of low or middle ranking, who's involved in the sort of the resistance to Hitler. I mean, it's quite a sort of intriguing decision to have these two characters who, you know, whose relationship is at the centre of the book and yet who don't actually end up in a room together or communicating directly for three quarters of the book. Well, that's true. And it's, you know, I, it's a technical difficulty in the novel, but I felt that the reader would... It's the alternate chapters. The first chapter we meet, Leggett, who's summoned back from lunch with his wife on his wedding anniversary to go into Downing Street and... Hitler's sort of rejected the British last British letter and it looks as though there'll be a war the next day. So he's in Downing Street. And then from there, we next go to see uh, Hartmann, who is in the German Foreign Ministry in Wilhelmstrasse dealing with correspondence. And then the armoured division goes by and Hitler ordered to sort of intimidate the British embassy and also to, he thought, get the Berlin population out on the street cheering ready for war. It didn't work out like that. And then we go back to uh, Leggett, who is then with the Downing Street secretary, having Chamberlain's favourite famous speech about faraway people of whom we know nothing being typed up, ready to deliver. And then back to Hartmann, who is monitoring the speech as it comes in. And so they're gradually drawn tighter and tighter together. But it's true, they don't actually meet until about halfway through the book, and really the cause of their, the great heart of their relationship isn't really revealed until the penultimate chapter. But, you know, I had these two characters who were both at Balliol in 1930, one a German Rhodes Scholar, a bit like Adam von Trott, and the other Hartmann, who comes top in the Foreign Office entrance exams, young men divided by, you know, the forces of the 1930s, and then thrown back together again by Munich. And I quite liked that sort of architecture of the novel. 
Hardman's great sort of theory, which is, you know, a lot of the, said for the book, is that Chamberlain's efforts to appease Hitler, the efforts to kind of, his refusal to be really aggressive is the problem because the theory is that if Chamberlain had said, you know, you go anywhere near the Sudeten land and it's war, that would have prompted the German military high command to launch a coup. Is that your reading of the historical situation? Do you think he's right about that? Well, I've tread a fine line in the novel. I mean, clearly there was something going on, but how serious it was, I'm not sure. In particular, I think that in the Foreign Office, there was definitely von Trott and various others, and and in the Intelligence Service, the Abwehr, Oster, who was later hanged, there clearly was a resistance movement of some sort. In the military, I'm not so sure. Of course, a lot of this came out in after the war, when it suited all sides to suggest that if only they, the German patriots, had been supported by the dastardly Neville Chamberlain, war would have been averted. It's another example of where everything is heaped on poor old Chamberlain. I'm not so sure. And the the only man who could really have brought Hitler down, the commander-in-chief of the Wehrmacht, uh, Brauschitz, specifically was in a prisoner of war camp in Bridgend, of all places, in 1947. And a German said to him, what, what is, because the stories were starting to come out of Nuremberg about this, and he said, so you were going to overthrow Hitler? And he said, what, what on earth are you talking about? Why would I want to do that? And I can't see why he would have lied about it. So I think that for me, it's, an, it's another example of the rewriting of history when Chamberlain was conveniently dead. I mean, he was excoriated by both left and right. The left, who voted against every measure of rearmament that Chamberlain put through, and indeed against conscription in March 1939. And I'm drawn as a novelist to these figures who are somewhat reviled in Your history. Chamberlain's a very sympathetic character in the book, actually, I think. I mean, he's... Yes, well, you know... Our lips move in unison, don't they, as we hear Churchill making the great speeches in 1940, and here we go, as another spitfire flying over. And My perverse nature <laughs> drew me to Chamberlain, and Chamberlain actually is a very interesting man, much tougher than people realise, a wiry, obstinate fellow, not at all the weakling with the umbrella that we like to hear about these days and so and a dynamic figure in 1938 I mean he really did change the course of history whether you think he was right about Munich or not I think there probably would have been war in 1938 but for Chamberlain. He's also very sympathetic in, in his relationship with his wife he's a very auxiliary figure in this. Well he was very deeply in love with his wife and he was a very strong family man and he was a quiet man a shy man some of the details which i discovered about him for instance when he used to go down to checkers there was no telephone or at least there was one in the butler's pantry and he didn't want to be disturbed at weekends <laughs> checkers it was completely another world but this private secretaries who worked for him liked him a lot he was phenomenally hard-working kind figure if very reserved it might take him months to start speaking to you and I liked him I mean I, I did like him and I think he's as he himself said in the summer of 1940 the Spitfires came from somewhere I mean he'd been the prime minister who commissioned them and built them and he was in he was the decisive voice in May 1940 when Halifax wanted to hear Hitler's peace terms Churchill was then prime minister and it was Chamberlain as leader of the conservative party which he still was who said no i mean because he obviously he above all men knew that 
any peace terms from Hitler were not to be trusted. So I think, you know, if one function of the book is it gives a slightly different perspective on Chamberlain, I'll be glad of that. And you mentioned Halifax. You also have fun with him as a bit part character. He's very sort of silky and... Well, the holy fox, as he was known, yes, who seems to have constantly slightly ambivalent role, one day one side, one day another. So you talk Um, about him as a fox sort of going back on his tracks. Yes, that's right. One minute he'd he'd support measures of appeasement, then he'd change his mind, uh, then he'd be all resolute. Then in May 1940 he wanted to find out if it was possibly possible to get peace terms you know you, you could never quite be sure where you were with the Hermit Fox. Was that vacillating do you think or was he was he simply very Machiavellian or going you know, to keep his cards close to his chest? Well you know there, nobody seems to really know. Churchill was quite scathing after the war about him. The thing about Edward he said is he was yellow. He was yellow in India, he was yellow with the Nazis. <laughs> uh, he's, he's got a yellow streak all the way through him. So you know I've, I find him a very, he's certainly a very interesting character. You also got, which I mean, it's another feels like another nice interview. Alec Douglas Hume appears sort of towards the end, <laughs> and he's less attractive, but you know, it's a sort of lipless smile you describe him as having. Yes, well, at that time he was in his late twenties. Lord Dunglass, he was an MP, he was heir to the earldom of Hume, and he was Chamberlain's PPS. Nobody could ever quite work out why it was Chamberlain's PPS. And there was a theory it was because he had such brilliant fishing rights on the Tweed because Chamberlain liked to fish and shoot. But there was a wise old secretary in Downing Street, one of the private office, who's also appears in the book, Miss Watson, who was there in... Um, she's historical. Oh, yes, yeah, she's oh. real. She was there in Lloyd George's day. And uh, she said to Jock Colville, who was one of the private secretaries, one day Lord Dunglass will be Prime Minister, you mark my words. And they all fell about laughing that this slightly goofy future Earl might be Prime Minister. But of course she was right. And in the book he's sort of always there somehow. And he's the only man, the only British official, or not really an official, who went, who Chamberlain took to meet Hitler in Hitler's apartment. All the foreign office of people were left behind. It was just Alec Douglas Hume, who, as far as I know, didn't even speak German. He found himself sitting in Hitler's front room with Neville Chamberlain. I interviewed him 30 years ago about this, Alec Douglas Hume, and he he was very interesting about it. And what did he say? Well, he was strongly of the opinion, and I can't see why he would have wanted to lie about it, that Chamberlain wasn't quite as fooled by Hitler as everyone has always maintained, and that he said to him when he got this piece of paper, which incidentally, the famous piece of paper, I hadn't realised, was mainly Hitler's own words from a speech earlier in the week, which Chamberlain got him to sign, like a kind of pledge. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. our two countries never to go to war I hadn't realised that again. either. I no, a German historian, Max de Maris, pointed that out. And at any rate, before Chamberlain went off to uh, get Hitler to see if he could get him to sign this. Alec Douglas Hume sort of said, is this wise, Prime Minister? <laughs> to which, according to him, Chamberlain said, uh, he may break it, he may break his word, but at, the, at least then people will see what he's like, and it may bring the Americans in. So I'm going to make a big thing of it when I get home. And of course, when he got off the plane at Heston, that was when he waved it in front of the newsreel cameras, and kind of, he did pin Hitler by that very yeah. public demonstration of this agreement and in the process destroyed his own reputation. Actually you have you have Hitler saying saying something like 
you know, well, I didn't see any harm in signing up the sort of silly old fool. And I think Ribbentrop sort of goes... Yes, well, uh, Ribbentrop know. did suck his teeth when he... Because Hitler just... Almost to get get this old devil out of his apartment, just sort of signed it barely without <coughs> barely looking at it. And when he explained it to Ribbentrop, when he told Ribbentrop what had happened afterwards, Ribbentrop, oh, <laughs> he did a kind of, is this wise my Führer? And in a way, it was pretty, probably pretty, it was a mistake on Hitler's part. Actually, there's another, another document, which is a sort of centre of the book in some ways, or is a centre of the your plot in the book, is this kind of cabinet minute in which... Hitler talks from 11 months earlier in which Hitler talks about Lebensraum and you know his long-term ambitions in the next five years to actually launch a war of conquest and take over the whole of Czechoslovakia and Austria and so on. Is that document, and forgive me, is probably very ignorant of me, is that historical? Yes. Is that made up? No, that is true. That was, um, is sort of known to historians as the Hostback Memorandum and uh, it's the first real laying out by Hitler of his intentions to launch a war of conquest in the East, he said by uh, 1943 at the latest. And he outlined this plan to the heads of the armed services and the foreign minister and um, a small group. And they were pretty well horrified, actually, or quite a few of them were. And the ones that expressed the most disquiet about this idea were removed. And Ribbentrop became foreign minister a few months later. And the high command of the army was cleaned out and he put in new people. So, you know, before Munich, there was some evidence kicking around in Germany that actually Hitler did intend to have a war. That's almost the only evidence there was, in fact. But is it your fiction writer's interpretation that that memo was, as it were, circulating around and available potentially to be passed to the English, or is it something that came out years after the war, or was it sort of in play? Certainly the foreign minister who attended would have had a copy. I think it was circulated. So there would have been a copy in the foreign minister's safe, and I just imagine that someone in the foreign ministry is having an affair with the secretary to the senior civil servant. He managed, She manages to get it to him, and he, he thinks, well, I'll try and get it to the British. That's the kind of motor of the plot. When did or, the British know about it? I, I, mean, I wouldn't have thought they actually got hold of it until after the war, when it featured in the Nuremberg trials but I think that's part of the license of a thriller writer or a historical novelist and and it obeys my rule of it could have happened it could have happened because we were being passed documents and certainly we were getting information throughout the summer of 1938 from people inside the German embassy in, in London and so they were constantly warning Halifax and Chamberlain that Hitler was planning to invade Czechoslovakia. I should ask what's what's maybe a slightly obvious question, but you know you're a historical writer as well as a you know very shrewd commentator on current politics. Do you see any parallels? You talk about the you know the great power of unreason in, in the coda of the novel. There's some you know this unreason taking over. You know we're being described as going through a sort of post-truth era now. I mean, do you see parallels in Hitler's authoritarianism and other modern authoritarianisms we're seeing growing up? I do. See some, yes. I mean, as the no, I finished the novel and then turned on the television, and there was a spectacle of swastikas being paraded through Southern American city, you know, and uh, and the American president surprisingly equivocal in his condemnation of these neo Nazis. 
And there is a sense that a kind of extreme views, racist, nationalist views, are more acceptable now than they were a few years ago. They seem to be more in the mainstream. And I think there is, at one point, I mean, living in Goebbels' propaganda culture, at one point one of the characters, Hartmann, I think, says, you know, you didn't, what he did enabled the Germans is to do is not to have to think. You know, you got spoon-fed the news that you wanted and it was all very comforting and pleasant. And for the first time one does sense that one gets that now, that, that everyone can get the news that they want and they don't really have to think. You know, they're just comforted in their prejudices. And there is a totalitarian vibe in the air, if I can put it that way, I feel. And, you know, you write novels, historical novels, and it may not be until some years later you realise why you might have written it, and if it doesn't sound too pretentious to say that. Why did I devote a decade of my life to writing about Cicero and the collapse of the Roman Republic? Even at the time, I thought it was a strange occupation. Afterwards, though, now when you see kind of unscrupulous multimillionaires whipping up the mob to attack the elite and the whole democratic structure crumbling under that pressure, you suddenly start, you suddenly start to think, oh, maybe that was why uh, I was doing it. Why is one drawn to write about Neville Chamberlain and appeasement and this little group of forlorn English civil servants bucketing around in a plane trying to negotiate the future of Europe and the future of Britain in this way. Again, one sort of feels almost subconsciously you've been drawn to something which may have some relevance, even if you're not altogether aware of what it is yourself. I mean, I don't think writers by and large are very... You don't sit down and think, oh, that has happened. Let me find an allegory here. It's far more likely that it's subconscious. Well, you can bring Robert's subconscious into your conscious by buying Munich out today. Robert Harris, thank you very much. Pleasure, thank you. Why wait for tomorrow's papers? The best analysis of the day's news is already on Coffeehouse. To subscribe to the Evening Blend email in order to receive the best of The Spectator each day, just head to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend.